Are you okay with me calling this a rhetoric program? I, yes. like classical composition really is, as you said earlier, leading to rhetoric. I feel like what we're doing is helping students learn how to make an argument, how to defend an argument, all of the content that needs to go into writing, and that they are going to learn to write anyway. They're going to learn to write. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about classical composition. We don't have Martin, um, and I have no idea why. Oh, he is out of town, and I thought we it would be nice to do a disclaimer and to let people know that he didn't just actually forget us like he does sometimes mm-hmm. when he's not on, but he literally is out of the state. Oh, okay. Because he texted me Sunday night at like 11.30 p.m., and it was my birthday. So I saw well, his name birthday, pop Shay. up we and I'm like, a present. We is have. he wishing me a happy birthday? And it just said, hey, won't be here this week. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, I saw yesterday when he said that he wasn't going to ACCS. Yeah. And I thought, huh. Yeah, he had told, already told me that. So I don't know okay. why he said it again. But Well, Ryan had a hotel room for him. Yeah. So if anyone wants to use Martin's hotel room, give me a call. Um <laughs> Before we get into our discussion of classical composition, though, what have you guys been reading recently? Um, let me think. Why am I not prepared oh, for this? Oh, wait. Oh, I read The Seahawk. We didn't talk about that by Sabatini. Oh, no. That's the one. Sabatini's really got you in his claws. Well, this was Sarah and I decided we were going to take a weekend off. Yeah. No farming. Mm-hmm. We we left the farm and we we read. I mean, read, took a nap, read, took a nap. It was great. Um, and you read, this isn't a follow-up to Captain Blood, right? No, this is a totally separate story, very similar story, but there's, but the contrast between the two I found fascinating. Mm. Um, but that, I just did that for fun. And I had taken three books with me, Soloviov and Larinov, which I finished. I've been working on that for, I think I mentioned this on that podcast, on this podcast like a year ago. So I finally finished that. It's a modern Russian novel. Um, worth reading. Mm, every time I this author, he also wrote Loris, mm. and every time I read a book by this author, which was recommended by Eighth Day Books, I I feel like I'm missing something essential, mm. and and I feel like I just don't understand Russia, my, at least modern Russia, in the way that like. I don't know. I can I can latch on to Tolstoy or Dostoevsky and understand what's going on there, but but this author has a fascination on sort. I think the breaking of time and space, mm-hmm. um, in, in like a cosmic sort of divine way, but I don't understand what's going on. Um, and that so sounds awful. It's it's <laughs> interesting. I mean, it was interesting. I needed to finish it. It was one of those that I couldn't just throw out the window. Yeah. Um. So I I fin- I took that one on this weekend. And I took the Seahawk and I had taken a book of Graham Greene's short stories. And that last one was the only thing I did. I didn't get to any of the short stories. No, but you will get to those. I will you get love to him. those. That's right. Mm-hmm. No. Tony, did that give you enough time to think of what you've read? Um, I'm reading. So I'm catching up on a few uh, of my murder mysteries that mm-hmm. are have just piled up. And I'm reading the second book in the Thursday Murder Club mystery okay. series by an, a British author. 
The Thursday Murder Club? Yes, it's people. It's this group of people. Is this in a Facebook an, group that you're in? No, they're in a, an old folks home. Okay. And there's and a murder every Thursday? They're, well, they solve these murders that are unsolved, but then real murders happen. It's amazing how many murders can be in one place. One nursing home? Or <laughs> one Forget little town. Like, look at Miss Marple, how many murders there sure. were <laughs> in her little town. Um, and... So I'm. That's like a really fast read. And then I just read another, but I can't remember what it was. And I'm still reading The American Cause by Russell Kirk, mm-hmm. which I need to pick back up. It's really hard for me in the summer to get sure. anything else done, but forum posts. And <laughs> so yeah. last night, instead of reading, I sat on my porch and looked through the 85 forum posts that had piled up in my inbox. Mm. So. It's not all... Not the most fun reading. No, but now I'm sitting in your chair. I don't know why. Is it because I'm wearing hot pink? So y'all decided I needed to be in the middle? That could be it. No, we all shifted because Martin's here. We just kind of spread out the chairs. Oh. I feel like, though, I'm in the host chair. Well, kind of, I guess. Jane, what have you been reading? Um, So I finished (laughs) uh, finished Dr. Pennington's Jesus the Great Philosopher, which is a really good book. And I would recommend any classical educator to read it. Um, Do you think that that would be a good Sunday school class book for a group of could be. people who aren't necessarily it's a little theologians? Heady. It's a little oh, heady. Okay. Um, his, he writes at a more, acce- it's a pretty accessible level, mm-hmm. but I would say I've read two of his books recently and the other one, Come and See, is like a very good like Sunday school class type book. Okay. But that one, I would say you have to kind of be interested in ancient philosophy a little bit okay. to really resonate with it. Um, really good. But then I read, so you guys will make fun of me for this more nonfiction, but I read, I've read two books last week because I read them on the plane, one on the way there, one on the way back. Um, and one of them, their parent, it was a parenting book. So I hadn't read it. I've never read a parenting book before. Yes. It's Jack causing trouble. Yeah. I just trying to figure out parenting. <laughs> I realized I'm a little late to the game now that I've already got a kid. So I read this book called Habits of the Household by Justin Early. And it was really, really good. Um, it, he's a Christian guy, but he was, it was very thoughtful. That name is familiar um, and I don't know why. Just talking about ways to just very practical ways to create good and healthy rhythms in the house. And me and Emily both read it and really like it. We're getting, we're talking about different ways that it's helpful for us. Um, and then he pointed to a book with um, connected to it that I also read on the way back called the soul of shame by Kurt Thompson. And it's a book of like on therapy that he had recommended as helpful for like thinking about childhood developmental psychology and such. Mm-hmm. And I don't endorse everything that was in the book or anything like that, but it was really helpful for understanding a, one particular way that people think about childhood psychology. Mm. Um, so read those um, last week, a little outside my normal genres, um, but both really good. Well, it sounds like you read a lot. What are you taking on the plane? Oh no, you're driving. To I'm driving. ACCS. So, what I'm oh, going to so take with me on the an drive audi- an audible. is I started East of Eden at Paul's Prompting. Oh, okay. Yes. I'll read that next. So I'm we like can 70 talk about pages it. in. And okay. so I am, I'm going to try to find an audio version and, and listen to it. Oh, on my I'm way sure to Pittsburgh. you can. The, I, the one I listened to was on audio. I really liked it. I think Martin criticizes it because of the way they pronounce the California names, which I don't care mm. about. Uh, which we don't know. But, but, but Martin the, does. But the... Right. But the rest of the of I mean the whole audio experience was good, so okay, I can send I can that to which Shane. That is. Yeah, I'll you all it. do work in the same office. Yeah, we don't actually talk though, except for in here. Yeah, um, I believe that. Let's get to our topic for today. 
Today, we're going to talk about classical composition. Now, Paul, I would say more than any other program that I believe in deeply and think is extremely effective for our students, classical composition is the one that most people are confused by and have a hard time using. Mm -hmm. Why do you think classical composition is so hard for people to wrap their minds around? I think there's an innate assumption when it comes to writing that because we naturally figure out how to speak in ways that people understand that we should be able to just naturally write, right? This is this idea of, of journaling that they have in schools. Tiny, I'm going to give you your opportunity to talk about that, but it's just sort of like, we'll just start down and sit right and start writing. Right. And then, and then, okay, maybe we teach them. There's kind of these four different genres of writing. You need to think about this when you're writing an expository thing or when you're writing a narrative thing. But I, there's this fundamental assumption that I think that you know how to how to put together some concepts to express those, and I think classical composition doesn't doesn't accept that assumption and says no. We we have to teach you very discrete skills that then you can put those together to put together a whole that is not only logical but is also persuasive in the way it comes across, whether it's whether it's a story, whether it's, you know, speaking about something somebody else said, sort of more expository, whether it's, you know, it's intended to be a persuasive paper. Uh, and, and that I think because we're kind of breaking down a fundamental assumption that most people have about writing and that, you know, even in, in my upbringing, which was many, many classical elements in what my education was, the progymnosmata was not talked about. It, it just was not. Well, that just on the that horizon. word in itself is intimidating, and all those big Greek words mm -hmm. that are involved in this program. Which, if you really get beyond that, like the big Greek words are not difficult. Well, they're difficult to say, but right. but you know, if you just and we and the students don't have to memorize them. They don't know have to have to know how to spell them, but they're intimidating mm -hmm. to adults especially. But like. What is it? Dendographia that mm -hmm. just means an expression of the wind. Uh, like you just have to. Yeah, the tree. And automographia would be the wind. Okay. There's like so the, it's just Greek literally words, yeah. a Greek, a big Greek word that's intimidating, but it just means in your writing, you need to, in some place in your writing, put a brief description of the wind or yeah. of a tree <laughs> or, you know, it's not intimidating, but it looks intimidating. Yeah. It looks very highbrow. All right. Right. It and does. It's not like here's how we're going to write a paragraph, and you have a topic sentence. It's a lot deeper than that. Right, and and I think for adults, we we look at that and we go, "Whoa, I'm not prepared for this right. because I don't know what these words mean." Um, but the, I mean, they're they're defined right there. They right? are. It's not. It's it's not that you can't figure it out, but it does require. It's it's not like just picking up. A, a different text than what you grew up with, but same, same vocabulary, same principles. It's different and, and different is hard. I think the other thing that we have to defend is the fact that in some of those, they are writing exercises. And in some of those exercises, you may end up with several paragraphs, but they don't necessarily transition beautifully. I hear that a lot from people that they feel like their child hasn't written beautiful things. Right. And it's like learning to play soccer. I remember learning how to kick a ball and they taught me how to kick it on the top of my foot instead of with my toes. Right. 
And so I, I had to practice that same skill again and again and again. But then, and I knew how to run. I knew how to dribble and run with the ball. And I could do those two things separately. But for me to run with the ball and then kick it far enough ahead in front of me for the, as I ran to, to instead of kicking with my toe to kick with the top of my foot. Soccer players know what I'm talking about. You have no idea what well, I'm talking about. I'm just about. thinking, why are you dribbling in soccer? That's what they call it when you <laughs> when you kick the ball in front of you. It's called oh, dribbling. I thought maybe he got his sports confused. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. okay. It's not like so, a basketball dribble. I've never no, seen a soccer no, player dribble. No, no. <laughs> this, is, this is just kicking the ball a little bit in front of you to keep it in your possession while you're running. Uh, that's what dribbling that's is in dribbling. soccer. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, but putting those two skills together... Of of dribbling, but then being ready for a, for a a long or powerful kick, that that in and of itself was this actually a separate skill. I could kick far if it was by you know like a penalty kick kind of thing. I could I could dribble with it, but putting those two things together was something that I intentionally had to practice. Now, but soccer coaches are going to first teach you how to dribble. They're going to then teach you how to kick far, and then they're going to put those two things together. Classical comp does the same thing. Does it eventually put them together so they're beautiful? Well, that... Does that happen in common topic, maybe? Well, well, I think that that comes naturally out of um, reflection on... I, I, I think that the actual skills in the stages, rarely ever you rarely ever get that. There, there's very little... Um, there are very few exercises where they say, create a seamless transition between this head of purpose mm-hmm. and this head of purpose. I think that where that comes from is the after you are becoming proficient at generating ideas and you start to understand the connections between, because a good transition mm-hmm. is the ability to see what connects to ideas that are different, right? right? You have to kind of connect them intellectually first. And I think that the stages help you make the connection. And then a student naturally is going to, once they see that clearly, be able to articulate it more clearly later on. In, right. their, and, in their actual writing. Like essay writing. Right. right. Instead of these are exercises. Right. And and it's it's going to get to a point where you start dropping heads of purpose, right? Where you if you're going to write an actual paper, you're not going to necessarily use all the heads of purpose and you're going to choose the ones that actually link up together to make yourself one solid and argument. And work for the particular paper that you're writing. Right. I do think that that's another thing that's very confusing for both teachers and parents when they're teaching classical composition is that the language of classical composition, it's similar to the point about the Greek words that we use, the big words, but also head of purpose and figures, head of of development. figures of description, heads of development. These mm-hmm. are like literalistic translations of Latin translations of Greek expressions oh that just like are not translating very well into English mm-hmm. right. and become technical terms that help us to orchestrate and construct the class. But if you, if you're trying to like understand what a head of purpose is, like it's just a space where you write within about a, in a particular way, yeah. you know, that's, that's all that you're doing with that phrase. But that phraseology, I think really does scare people, scare people. I, I think it does. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about that because I, 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 you know, as much as I've looked at the program and engaged with it and, and taught some of it, I, I still confuse heads of purpose, heads of development, right? Um, with regards to, to those transitions, I think it's helpful to kind of take a step back and look at this, the spectrum of, of writing programs that are out there, right? You have those that give you very little help. And are just like, let's write an expository essay, right? And and we just need a topic sentence and, you know, three sentences that, that support that. And you have other ones 
that are are very regimented, right? And when they're very regimented, it it comes across as um blocky or formulaic. You can you can always look no at somebody's room for no room for creativity. You can always look at that and go, oh, that person learned with this program, right? Um, whereas classical composition, I would say is kind of in between the two where we're going to practice these discrete skills, Mm -hmm. but we're going to, but when we get to a point, especially in Crea Maxim, where we're hitting these heads of development, development. um, that's where they, you're going to start getting these sort of clunky transitions, but um, they're, they're also making up their own stories to help, support this, this Kraya or this Maxim. They're, they're coming up with their own analogies, all these, this own stuff they're coming up with. So we can't, we can't give them a very particular, do this kind of transition or this is what a transition looks like. And that's where the role of the teacher is going to come in to really work on that. I think we've contextualized classical composition for a listener and talked around the issues, but can we now define what is classical composition? Where did it come from and why is it a part of our curriculum? Um, so the guy's name starts with an A, but it's not Aristotle. Aphthonius. Aphthonius. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> so Aphthonius came up with the progymnus mata. Uh, I think he codified it. He's okay. the latest of four. Codified, so there, we, at Memorial Press, we have this collection of, of of like an academically published collection of the Progumnismata, like examples of it in from ancient history. And Aphthonius is the latest of the four that's in that collection, but he's the most cogent of the four. And, and he's the, the one we use examples. What, of. That's right. We use his examples. Yeah. yeah. So, but. So classical composition is trying to intentionally walk a student through the 14 ancient Greek rhetorical exercises. And that's what the progymnosmata is the before exercises, right? This That's what that means. And those are the exercises they would do in preparation for, for the skill of oratory. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and so we're trying to build off of Aphthonius and his, his expression of those 14 exercises. Yeah. Um, so the Greek word there, a lot, most people, including the author of the program, uh, Jim Selby. And then I've heard I, Andrew Pudua used the pronounce it this way before pronounce it pro progym or progym nismata. The progym. Like 95% of people pronounce it that way. The word or in Greek, there is no just sound. Right. So I've it's always, I've always yeah. kind of pushed back on this, but it's fine. <laughs> so how would you like us to pronounce I've it? I've always pronounced it progumnismata. I don't want you to change for me. I can't do that. But I just, it's that's not why I pronounce it as progumnismata. Mm, okay. Yeah. As long as we're all okay with Shane pronouncing it wrong, I think we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> so how does this work out in the actual classroom? What are the students doing on a day-to-day basis in the various stages that's different from what they would do in a different writing program? Mm. Well... <laughs> So as we've said, this is exercise, writing exercises, and, and every stage is different. The fable and narrative are very close together, and they really are just learning to paraphrase a story um, for younger students. And then, I mean, we don't need to talk about every stage, do we? But it is different than your traditional writing that we all grew up with doing, and that 
um, but it's not, we're still doing that traditional mm-hmm. writing in our literature classes, in our history classes. So we're doing these exercises, which are you okay with me calling this a rhetoric program? I, yes. like classical composition really is, as you said earlier, leading, it's leading to rhetoric mm-hmm. and we're practicing for rhetoric. So basically what we're, I feel like, and maybe I'm, you know, please feel free to push back. I feel like what we're doing is helping students learn how to make an argument, how to defend an argument, all of the content that needs to go into writing and that they are going to learn to write anyway. They're going to learn to write by doing these. But it, I think it scares people because they're looking for that 3.5 paragraph essay. They're looking for a topic sentence that then leads to a paragraph. Um, they're looking for a research paper or a, a big essay on some, you know, on something or compares and contrast, whatever. Just those traditional things. And I think the the pro gym gets them, makes it possible for them to give really good content in the writing. And I, and people just, it's hard to trust mm. that that's going to happen. But when I was teaching, it was before we had classical composition. We didn't have a writing course. We, I mean, we really didn't. And we didn't do the writing. We were doing English with Rod and Staff Grammar. We didn't do those writing things in there because Cheryl thought they were, you know, just not, they weren't connected to our curriculum. And she felt like the writing that we did needed to be connected to something that the students have experienced and not just what, you know, what did you do on your summer vacation was just for her a total waste of time and not teaching anything. So, so we did our writing, like maybe we would summarize a chapter in King Arthur, or we would write um, a compare contrast when we were doing Adam of the Road, would you rather be a minstrel or an Oxford student? Just those kinds of things. And, and so we weren't, we weren't writing a lot of those things because after the students wrote them, first we would model and do a, we would do a paragraph together. This is fifth, sixth grade. We would do the paragraph together first. I would put the sentences on the board it, it, like with a class discussion. And then the students would have to copy it perfectly. And then eventually they would get where they could actually attempt it by themselves. And they would attempt it. But again, we didn't move on from that writing assignment and until it had been edited and rewritten, edited and rewritten until it was perfect. Now, that's hard in a classroom because you need them all Mm -hmm. to get there at the same time and they don't. And I had one student that never, she never needed any editing or rewriting. (laughs) She was a beautiful writer. Um, So when she would hand me hers back and everybody else was working on their edits, I would say, now you need to cut it in half. So... Then she would bring it back to me and it would be perfect, perfectly cut in half. And I would say, okay, now cut it again. I mean, just whatever I could do that right. would keep her challenged. Um, at home, it's easy because you're one-on-one. But I feel like, I feel very strongly that if you write less but make it perfect, the students will learn how to write. If you just give them something to write, you grade it. A, B, C, whatever, you mark red all over it, you hand it back to them and you don't require anything else, they're mm-hmm. going to put it in a backpack and they have learned nothing. Right. They are not going to look at it. 
So you have to just keep editing and editing and editing until it's right. If it means you only do four papers a year, those are perfect papers when you get finished. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is not everybody knows how to edit. So one time I had a student who I told all my students, I said, okay, this is it. We've finished this paper. And now before you hand this in to me, you get somebody to edit it for you. And I mean, I wrote all over this one. And I said, I told you to go home and have your one of your parents edit it. And she said, I did. My mom, <laughs> my mom edited it. I felt terrible. <laughs> it never really crossed my mind that any adult had looked at this paper mm. because it was so bad. Yeah. And so I never did that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just awful because I'm sure she went and told her mom, you know, I mean, look at my paper. Look what you did to me. So not. Uh, so what do we do in that situation? You well, you got to find some help. Right. The students need to learn how to write. And if you can't help them, that's something you go to mm-hmm. go to Memoria Academy <laughs> or find a tutor sure. or something. Yeah, because because any any growth in the skill of writing is going to take feedback absolutely from whether you know whether it's from a teacher whether it's from a parent tutor whatever that you you, because every piece of writing is going to be different right and people a lot of people are insecure about i can edit grammar spelling punctuation i can edit that all day long but as far as content I don't know that I'm a great editor of content transitions. I can get them through transitions, but I don't know that I would do a good job with that in high school, but I do know that limitation. So I think you have to know what you feel comfortable doing. Right. I do want to point out though, that when it comes to writing, once you get out of high school, nobody's looking at the structure of your writing looking for a formulaic structure, right? They will tell you, write a, you know, write a paper that defends Lincoln's decision to, you know, uh, sign the emancipation. Sure. Send, Send the troops to Fort Sumter, whatever it is. Right. I mean, and, and it's not your paper, whether it's got five paragraphs or 10 or two, as long as those paragraphs are broken down into conceptual units and you make a cogent argument, the person reading that is, is going to like it. Right. Right. Um, and you know, if you're going to submit a news, uh, an opinion piece to the newspaper, whatever it is, nobody's looking for that formulaic. Right. The question is whether you have structured it in such a way that it's comprehensible, understandable and engaging. And you have to also know your teacher. (laughs) Students have to learn that. Some teachers want a lot of flowery language and some want absolute conciseness. (laughs) Um, My older son had a teacher once who wanted that. She wanted that language. She and he hated to write. He hated to see him really struggling with that. Yes. And so his, he was a very concise writer in, in fact, one time, and so she would never get, she would put a B on his paper and say, Nick, this could have been an A. And I said, you've got to write what she, the way she wants. And he said, it doesn't make, I mean, why would I write more words than this? <laughs> I've said what I wanted to say and what needed to be said. I've answered her question, but that's not what she was looking for. She was really looking for a descriptive <laughs> paragraph that she didn't get. Yeah. 
but Cheryl once had, she taught him um, seventh grade English, Cheryl Lowe. And she had given them a paper on Julius Caesar. And I can't remember what they had read the play. And I can't remember what they were supposed to do. But she said it was all girls in the class and Nick. And it was supposed to be like two to three pages. And all the girls gave her five to six pages. And Nick gave her three quarters of a page. And she brought it to me and she said, so I my instructions were specifically two to three pages. Everybody else gave me many more pages, but she said he's the only one that actually answered the question that I asked and I gave him an A. But she said next time he needs to follow my directions. If I say two to three pages, then he needs to give me a two to three page because it looks lazy. Right. Yeah, but right. he did answer her question. Yeah. But so uh, for the for the high school student, know your teacher and college, my goodness. True. You could end up with anything. On your point about rhetoric, I do I agree a hundred percent. And I think it's in the appendix where um, the author of the classical composition books talks about <clears throat> how he's drawing from Erasmus's, I think it's called Decopia on abundance. Um, and one of the five canons of rhetoric is invenio, invention. And that's what all of the classical composition really is about is the ability to produce new thoughts or at mm-hmm. least to say old things in new ways. And so I think that it's squarely in the realm of rhetoric to say that classical mm-hmm. composition is teaching you invention. Now on the question of grading individual students, I've always been of the opinion that classical composition in particular is a little bit individualized in terms of how you be, you interact with students. Be, for the point that you were making, Tony, it's not that what you're teaching isn't objective, but a student that can't write a full sentence isn't probably ready to, you know, learn about the vagaries of varied sentence types. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And we, you know, we don't even have a writing class. Um until they get to third grade, because we are working in primary on mastering a sentence. That's a skill. Right. And we work really hard in primary school for our students to be able to master a sentence, actually write a good sentence um, that, that answers a question thoroughly, but concisely. So, if you can't do that, you're not ready for classical composition. Well, in third grade, we really work on paragraphs, and you need that before classical comp, too. Yes. Well, and keyword outlining, mm-hmm. because we're using IEWs, all things fun and fascinating. Yeah. So, but so I, we're I, learning. Like, I taught, you know, eighth grade cottage school students, and some of them were maybe not as strong as mm-hmm. a standard kind of every year full-time HLS student. And I had some that you couldn't have identified a comma splice if it was hitting them in the face, Mm -hmm. but then other students that they needed to be working on actually telling stories in concrete and vivid ways as they were developing their, you know, the, the stay that stage in common topic. I I felt like with the student who who's writing with constant comma splices, they need to learn the basics of sentence structure. And so I do think you have to be able to read each student. It's not like being a music teacher. You're, the, a student's going to play a piano is at very widely levels. It's the same objective path towards mastery, but you've got to identify where they're at on that path. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like teaching, you know, any skill, right? If, 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 if writing is a skill, you're, you're, you are in, in effect apprenticing those children, right? And you have to, you have to make the call of, you know what, if I'm, if, if I'm 
teaching a child how to be a blacksmith and, you know, one kid hasn't learned how to handle the heat appropriately. Well, I got to do that before I teach him how to swing a hammer. Well, you know, and it's the same thing with writing. And so you've got to, you've got to focus on those building blocks, but it's hard. And when you have 15 kids, that's right. all supposed to be doing the same thing, but that's where that individualized response to their, it's just the feedback. Mm -hmm. It is. It's the feedback and the one-on-one meeting with them one-on-one. I really like um, at Oxford, they have that tutor system mm-hmm. where their terms are very short, but you like literally meet with your tutor a couple times a week, or I don't even know if it's that much. I guess it depends. I was talking to Jan about it, mm. your friend Jan. And um, you're getting that one-on-one talk about a great experience. Mm. You're getting exactly what you need on the level that you are and I found when I taught, the last year I taught, I had 18 students and six were new hmm. to the school. The other 12 had been writing. They mastered a sentence yep. in primary and they'd been writing. Those six were all over the place and some of them had never written at all. And I had to start where they were. So my expectations for them were lower than they were for my students that, that had been brought along our system because it, it wasn't fair to expect the same thing from them. So you're right. We've got a writing is one place, but that's true, I guess, with any subject, but writing is, it's a lot harder. To a greater degree. I mean, with math or Latin, like you spelled it incorrectly or you have the wrong answer to the problem. But with, when teachers are asking me for a rubric, it's like, even within the rubric, Mm, like how heavily are you going to force the style section or the formatting section? And it really does depend on where the students are. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that, and that can feel unjust, right? Where this child, maybe their writing was objectively better than that child, but because they weren't able, they didn't do what you knew they were able to do and what you asked them specifically to improve on their mark, may be lower than the other child. Right. I think this has been a really helpful primer to classical composition. We could go deeply into each of the stages and maybe we should in future episodes, but did we leave anything else on the table? Are there any other major objections to classical composition we haven't addressed? Uh, not that I can think of, but we haven't talked about journaling, which oh, I would really journaling. like to talk about. Yeah, what is your feeling? Martin on journaling? said he wanted to talk about journaling. Should mm-hmm. I wait for him? No, I think go for can it. Can I talk about it? Go for it. it. Yeah, let's do okay, it. I, so you're a big fan, right? Of I journaling? cannot stand journaling. <laughs> That's not Hold true. On. Journaling for, for journaling for your student. personal edification or in no, the classroom. Jur- I, in the classroom, I think journaling is a very valuable thing that helps a lot of people as adults, as teenagers. But I think for in the classroom, to I've been to many schools where a teacher will say, "Okay, for the next ten minutes, get your journals out, write anything you want to." What are we teaching? We're not teaching grammar. We're not teaching spelling. We're not teaching punctuation. Nobody's ever looking at it. We're teaching them to think about themselves mm-hmm. instead of the outside world and the other people. Preach. It, it's We're teaching them to preach? No, no, no. I'm telling oh, you, you're preach. you're telling me to preach. <laughs> preach. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. Um, it's just, it's a total waste of time, and I think it needs to stop. It should be illegal in schools <laughs> to journal. Maybe now. a little far. It's not <laughs> regular. So at, at the risk of there being violence on camera here, can I try to play devil's advocate oh, just to hear you go right ahead. overcome the objections? Yes. You, you like journaling? 
Well, no. I'm, I mean, you, I don't want to get hit if here. You I'm want sorry. To journal, if you want to journal in your free time at home, but if I catch you journaling... I would never journal <laughs> at the office, I swear. Um, <laughs> first of maybe, all... Maybe you could journal as long as Tanya gets to read it and give you feedback on your writing. I, that would first of all, worse. who really wants to hear your inner thoughts? That's, thank you for that. Okay, here's, the obje- here's the objection. What What about the 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 value of our students expressing themselves and so learning how to have a voice. Oh, they learn that anyway, <clears throat> especially in America. All students have a voice <laughs> and they know how to use it and they're using it on social media mm. all the time. Yeah. We need less of that. Not more of it. Yeah. I mean, we really. I had a hard don't. time even framing that objection. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's tough to get out, honestly. I, it's just, I, and I am, I mean, I'm not saying that a student shouldn't journal at home. Sure. Or on the, I mean, there are students who love writing and who love creative writing and want to write stories. I am all for that, but not in my classroom time. Well, and, and, you know, I, I think, I think the impulse towards journaling in a classroom. It's the same impulse of saying like that says it doesn't matter what they're reading as long as they're reading something, right? So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what they're writing as long as they're writing something. And and that's th- just that, not true. That's just not true. That, that argument doesn't hold up because you know it's it's like um I, I don't know uh, if if you're just any sort of physical activity, whether it's sports, you know, playing basketball, well. If if you're always shooting the ball with one hand instead of two, right, then you're you're forming a habit in which it's going to be hard to break, and you may get to a point where your your percentage of getting that shot in is is okay, but your coach coming alongside you early on and saying you need to be shooting with two hands because your your final proficiency is going to be better than always shooting with one well, then you're not going to form that habit, right? Because what happens with those kids at journaling, they, they, they'll probably get to, to a level that, that's acceptable, right? But they're constantly making these other, other mistakes that are, that are going to be very hard to correct later on. And so it's better to do a little bit in the classroom with feedback which is not journaling, which is but not journaling. actually connected, something connected to the curriculum. It's yeah. like I journaled out loud yesterday in the hall with Paul and Ryan. I said, well, I've got to go get my hair dyed because it's turning gray. And I went off to England during my hair appointment. And then my hair guy went on vacation. And so it's been way too long. We and got I'm it just, all. Yes, they got and, and Paul was like, okay, this is totally uninteresting. Go on to your hair appointment and we won't even notice tomorrow that I, anything I told her happened. I would set a phone reminder so I'd, I'd compliment her on her nice, right. nice. Yeah, but, smart. I mean, totally forgot to do it though. That's, that's the kind of thing that we right. would journal Ends about. in the journal. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, that's not true for every student. Some students are, are maybe going to journal about something they've read the day before, but, but that's not really... The way I've seen journaling, well, I don't, I just, I just think it's not a good use of time. Writing ought to be connected to the curriculum with a specific end goal and that end goal ought to be checked and given feedback on. Yes. Very nice summary. And, and I think that the, um, 
the topics can be creative, but they do need to be relevant to something because these students don't have, especially young students, they don't really have life experience. They don't have any wisdom yet. So what do they really have to write about you besides the fact that, you know, maybe they need to get their hair dyed, mm-hmm. which is, of what value was that to Paul? When I was a kid, I needed to get my hair dyed, but <laughs> for most people, that's not the case. Well, you I could have journaled say, about I don't that. Like most kids need their hair dyed. I think dyed. you just journal on your own time. Well, let that be a warning to every Memorial Press employee. <laughs> don't get caught journaling at work. <laughs> You're done. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.